Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23 is where we're going to be. And uh, excited for what God has for us in as this series this morning as we continue our series. Uh, we started a couple weeks ago. I want to believe, but. I want to believe, but. And uh, to be honest, I, I'm, I've been praying about this series for a long time. I mentioned that before. Uh, I truly believe there are so many people that we come in contact with every single day that want to believe. They want to put faith and trust in Christ, uh, but there's something keeping them back. There's a hurdle, there's a ceiling. And as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, I'm not talking about the hardcore atheist. I'm not talking about the person that's in opposition to God, that thinks, you know, belief is foolish and, and mocks God and all of that. I'm talking about the people that we'd maybe consider kind of on the fence. They're kind of, they want to believe, but there's something holding them back. And so far, we've talked a lot about some of those examples. Uh, we've been talking about the reality that most people who say, I want to believe, but they, they, they aren't having a hard time believing in the God of the word of God. They're having a hard time believing in a God that's been maybe distorted image that's been put to them. An image of God that they've believed or that they've wrongly believed rather, that, that they think this is how God is. And so when they start to really try to believe in that God, they have a hard time because, well, I can't believe in a God who is like this. But if they really got into God's word and they really were shown who God really was, they would understand that God they're having a hard time believing in doesn't really exist. That's not the God that we're trying to encourage people to trust in. We're trying to encourage them to trust in the God of the, the true God, rather, of the living word of God. And so we've talked about a few different things over the last couple of weeks. And two of those areas we've talked about so far, the first one uh, that we talked about two weeks ago is the on-demand God. Uh, so many people said, I want to believe in God, but I can't because he wasn't there when I asked him to do A, B, or C. He didn't do what I wanted him to do when I wanted him to do it. So therefore, I have a hard time believing in a God who's not on demand. Well, the reality is there is no such thing as on demand God. God is not on demand. God is not made to be in submission to us. Uh, nowhere in scripture does God ever relinquish his throne. And we should be really excited and happy about that. Because guess what? That every moment he's on his throne means he's still God. Means he's still ruling. He's still overseeing. I love the passage that Mike read just a little bit ago. Uh, what amazing truth. Man, his mercy is forever and forever and forever. Nothing will ever stop his mercy or his grace or his love for you. But I love a part in that psalm where it said he sits on his throne. He's still in, encased in his sovereignty. He doesn't relinquish that and say, okay, now that you're a follower of Christ, I give you all the control. Now you get to be God over me. That's not how it works. God never once says, I'm going to become on-demand God. And so when God isn't an on-demand God, we get angry, we get frustrated. And by the way, he's okay with you telling him those things. He's okay with you saying, God, where were you? God, I thought you would do this. I don't understand. But we have to be very careful there because there's a line there. We have to get, get to the point of saying, God, I don't understand, but I still trust you. God, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand why you didn't do it this way or why you did it that way. But I just want you to know, even though I don't understand, I trust. We have to be careful that we live in that area as followers of Christ or as we're encouraging other people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not give them the impression that once they get saved, everything is perfect. That once you get saved, everything is going to be roses. Everything is going to be, it's always going to work out the way you want it to. God never promised that. He says, I will answer your prayers. I will be there for you. I will use all things to your good. But 
When we pray and ask something in his name, according to his will, it's his will that we're asking to be done, not our will. And so on-demand God that we have a hard time believing in doesn't actually exist. So we have to understand that's, that's okay if you don't want to believe in on-demand God because he's not there. And if you get mad at God because he's not on demand, that's not really fair either because he never said he would be. The second one we talked about last week was goosebump God. Goosebump God. This is where I want to go to church. I want to sing the songs. I want to read the Bible. But when I do those things, I don't feel anything. As I said last week, I don't get the goosies, you know. And the reality is sometimes God moves in ways. And when you're in his presence, he moves in ways that you can't describe in any way other than, man, it was just an amazing experience to be in God's presence. You may not say goosebumps or goosies, okay? I'm going to encourage you not to use the word goosies, okay? That's not really needed. But you may experience something with God in your relationship where you're like, man, I just can't put words to it. And there's going to be emotion involved. It's going to be an experience with God. There's going to be feelings involved. That's great, and that's good, and that's fine. Nothing wrong with that whatsoever. But we don't base our relationship with Christ on those feelings. We don't base our relationship with Christ on how I feel on any given day. And again, we should be really thankful for that. Because if if I based my relationship with God on how I felt on any given day, man, my relationship would be like this with God. Here's how I know. When I try to put it my own way, my relationship like this is like this with God. Not because God is changing, but because I'm the one that's being fickle or not really getting into God's word because I just don't, quote, feel like it. I don't sing the way, I just don't feel anything. And we talked about it last week. There's some reasons maybe why we're not feeling something when we're in the presence of God. Maybe we're over-sensationalizing it. Maybe we're expecting every single time there's this mountaintop experience. But again, he never says that. It's amazing to me. You know the basis for our salvation, if it's not in how I feel on any given day? What is the basis? It's the word of God. John says it this way. When your heart tries to kind of speak against you, man, God is greater than my heart. What does that mean? I don't have to worry about, I don't really feel saved today. Like, guys, listen, I know I'm a pastor, and I probably shouldn't admit this, especially since it's being recorded and it'll be online. There are many days I don't feel saved. I don't feel like a Christian. You know why? Usually, it's because I'm not really focusing on what it really means to be a follower of Christ. I'm over-sensationalizing it. Or I've got a little cold, a little apathetic. I think it's more about me. God's not the on-demand God I thought he would be, even though he never said he would. And then when he's not on demand, I get angry and I start drifting away from that relationship. So then when I'm in his presence, I don't feel the things I once felt because I'm not really connecting with him. There's this thing between us. I I was mad at him because he wasn't on demand. And so now the relationship, there's this kind of, this hindrance in it. Uh, There's all kinds of things here that could lead to that feeling or not feeling those things. But the key is we don't base our relationship. We We don't believe in God because of the goosebumps that we get at times. We believe in God and we trust in God because he is good because he died for us on a cross, was buried and rose again. And he says, if you receive Christ, that's all you need. You're saved forever. That's the foundation of our belief. So on demand God doesn't exist. People say, I can't believe in a God that's not on demand. Well, that's okay because he doesn't exist. I can't believe in a God that doesn't always make me feel this way. That's okay, because God never says he's going to do that. I mean, just, I love, again, Mike read Psalms. When you read Psalms, do you read about a lot of people that didn't feel that God was for them? Do you read about a lot of people in the book of Psalms that felt like God was away from them or distant from them? Or the one we read last week, he was hiding his face from them? I mean, I've felt that way at times, that God was hiding his face from me. 
But again, we don't base it on our feelings. What's the truth? He says in Hebrews, he'll never leave us or forsake us. So when my feelings start telling me God is distant, for whatever reason, maybe I did something I shouldn't have done and I feel a little conviction and now I'm thinking, oh God, you're just done with me now. And I had these feelings that rise up against me. I need to go back to the word of God and say, no, the Bible actually says. And then I say, God, let truth lead my emotions, not emotions lead what I think is true. Now we gotta live there. Truth has to lead emotion. If we flip it around, then truth becomes experiential to every single person. Truth becomes just fleeting. What's true today for you might not be true for me tomorrow. And it's just a shifting sand. We can't live this way. And again, God doesn't want us to. I just saw a quote from Martin Luther, and I'm not going to get it exactly right, but it basically said, we should never allow our emotions or our conscience to make us believe something the Word of God doesn't say. That's, I mean, it's just, it's crazy how, what was it words we said last week? We should never doubt God in the darkness after what he taught us in the light. We have to remain trustworthy or trusting in God because he is trustworthy. This morning, as we're getting into our third week of this series, uh, we're going to be talking about a view of God that is so common and yet could not be farther from the truth. This morning, we are talking about killjoy God. Killjoy God. Now, this is the God of rules and regulations, religion and rigid seriousness. No smiling, no laughing, no joy. Mere mourning and weeping and gnashing of teeth. That is God. While God is a serious God, I understand this now. I, I want to make sure we understand this in balance. I'm a big believer in living a balanced life. I think that God expects us to live in a balanced way. God is a serious God, Right? I mean, when you read the Bible, it doesn't take you long to realize God's pretty serious about some certain things. One thing that God is very serious about is his glory and his honor, his praise. God will always be glorified. God will always make sure that he is glorified. God will always make sure, and he is very serious about his will being accomplished. He, that, that's not a laughing matter to God. It's a serious thing that God will accomplish his will. But when you think about this God that can be and is at times in certain areas very serious, we have to remember that doesn't mean that God expects us to always live in this rigid, uh, very sorrowful, no joy, no happiness. We're just under these rules and under this law, and we're just burdened down. That's not how God expects us to live, especially in Jesus Christ. So we have to balance this out. Because again, this, this does not mean that God doesn't care what I do. If it makes you happy, do it. That's a popular saying, right? How can it be bad if it feels so good? Let me just give you a little insight here. If it feels that good, it probably is bad. Okay, just going to throw that out there. Just kidding. Not really. When you think about that, people say that always, oh, if it feels good, then what's the problem? It's not hurting anybody. If we get our joy and our pleasure out of something that is sinful, then sooner or later, it will destroy you. And not only you, that's the crazy thing. It doesn't stay with us. If I choose to give in to sin, and I do this for a period of time, and I'm thinking, man, this is bringing me pleasure and joy, sooner or later, and without us sometimes even knowing, it seeps out of us in our little situation and starts affecting those in our lives. Spouse, kids, neighbors, church family. It never stays with just me. And so I want to make sure again, is God a God that is a killjoy God? No, absolutely not. In fact, 
when you read the Bible, how many times does God say, have joy, be joyful, may your joy be full, take joy. What does Paul say? Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Now, let me stop here again. I feel like I need to give a little kind of asterisks here on these things because I want to make sure we understand this. Some of you have a hard time with that right now. Some of you are like, you know what? There's no joy. I can't, I would love to rejoice in the Lord, but I can't because of this, 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 or this. Situations, circumstances in your life. Understand me now. The joy that Paul's talking about is not this surface, always smiling, always seemingly happy, always bubbly, always cheerful. You know, like you wake up at 5.30 and you're a cheerleader for everyone else for the day. And most people that have kind of just, just one time, just bam, right? Because you're just like, be quiet, stop talking, please. It's 6.30 in the morning. If you say one more word, I'm going to lose my mind, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Now, for some of us, we express our joy in that way. But joy itself is found not in this circumstantial happiness, but in something deeper, in something more sure. Now, listen, if your joy is found only in things like whether you get the good parking space, whether you have the good hair day, whether you get the outfit to match, right? Your, your kids are to school on time and dressed and clothed and fed and there's no blood and there's no mud and there's, it's this good day. If that's all you're getting, then it's circumstantial, and you can take joy in those things, but man, the joy that the Bible's talking about is this deep-seated, everlasting, in Christ, eternal joy. And so my encouragement to you that are sitting here today, they're like, you know what, that sounds great, preacher, but man, you just don't get it. I just, I can't, I can't be joyful right now. Just with this and this and this going on. Let me encourage you. I get where you are. I get it. I get that that's real to you. But my encouragement to you is this then begin to pray and ask God, God, help me to know your joy in a, in a way that overcomes my feelings right now. Help me to know your joy in a way that overcomes my circumstances right now. Because God is not a kill joy God. God is not a feelingless, just angry, you know, vindictive God in some ivory tower just casting down judgments. That's not God. God is a God that says, no, I want to be able to see you joyful. I've always said this, why did he give us the beauty of creation? So that we could enjoy it. Do you know that even people that don't know Christ get to experience great levels of joy in this life? The birth of a child? Man, talk about joy. The newborn cry? Some of you have experienced that a few more times than others. I pray for you. Okay, I'm not going to name names, Mike and Kim, but I'm just saying. Love those guys. Um, but no, I mean, there's nothing, I mean, that's just joyful. Now, sooner or later, that newborn cry turns into a different kind of cry, and then it turns into talking, and then you're like, not so much joy. No, no I'm just kidding. They're still joyful. They're still joyful. You got to forgive me. I've been home alone with my two boys for like two days, and I'm going a little crazy. Okay, so not really. They're great. Um, the 12-year-old. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, love you, Anthony. He's back there in the sound booth. Um, he could turn my mic off right now if he really wanted to. So I just, I should probably be a little careful. <laughs> just kidding, buddy. Whatever you want, man. It's all you. Um, but no, when you look at these joys of life, we all experience these joys. And it's good to enjoy those things. God wants us to enjoy life. But see, here's the difference. Some of us think joy, like real joy, comes from doing something that God has said not to do. And then we think that saying it not to do thing, that's somehow God limiting my joy or limiting my enjoyment of life. That God, you're just a killjoy God. You just don't want me to enjoy life. And so you've put all these rules around me. Let me encourage you with this. Anything that God said, thou shalt not, 
is because if you did, you, you might experience temporary joy, but ultimately it's going to bring destruction, chaos, hurt, pain. Anywhere God says don't, it's because it was best that they didn't. And as a good and loving Heavenly Father, he's saying, this is what I have for you. And so when you look into this idea here, we talk about, we're going to use the word religion a lot. And I'm going to define it a little bit here, but I think that there are those even in Jesus' day that misunderstood what God was all about. They misunderstood what God was really trying to accomplish. And so let's look at Matthew chapter 23 in verse 25. Matthew chapter 23 in verse 25. It says here, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. By the way, Jesus just like named their sin. Like, could you imagine? This is why... I would love to be around Jesus physically. Man, it'd be so amazing. But there's a part of me that'd be a little afraid. Because what if he was like, and then we have John here, the blah, 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 and the blah, blah, blah. Okay, he just throws my sin out there. So what does he do here? He says, listen, this is who you are. You, you act like you're clean and you're good on the outside. But he says here in verse 25, full of extortion and excess. Verse 26, thou blind Pharisee, Cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Let's pray and ask God to give us wisdom in this. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we'd have understanding and guidance and wisdom as we walk through the rest of this talk this morning. Father, we pray that we would be open to you and what you have for us. Help us to understand that your, your goal in setting these laws in the past and even now, the boundaries you encourage us to put on our life, Lord, these things that we sometimes will see as negatives, I pray that we would see that they're not to limit our joy, but they're so that we can truly enjoy the things that will bring us the greatest peace and the greatest happiness. So, Father, give us wisdom in this. We, I have no words to give. I don't have anything beyond your word to give. And I pray that, as your word says, that because we're coming to you and we're asking, as James 1 says, that if we feel that we act wisdom or lack wisdom, we're asking of you to grant it to us. And we believe that you will give us wisdom, that, Holy Spirit, you'll lead, guide, and direct, and enlighten and illuminate our minds to these truths. And I pray that we would be just students of you this morning, students of your word, humbly ready to receive what you have for us. Help us to open ourselves up to you, Lord, not just in our hearts, but also in our mind, that we would understand more of who you are and what you have for us. We love you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus was kind of hard on the religious crowd here. Uh, and the reason he was hard on them was because they cared more about the outside than they did the inside of a man. Again, this doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't care about how we live. His rebuke came because they were supposed to be showing people what it is to know God intimately. Instead, they just tripped people up with their silly rules and regulations. Things they added on to the people caused a burden and a weight, even though them themselves, they themselves were still battling with these things, and they weren't really righteous because they were struggling. So I want to start off by talking about the bad news about religion. I want to kind of show you two different sides here of a coin. 
the bad news about religion. Because some people think that to believe in God means I just have to do this and say this and go to this place and, and make these good choices and everything will be fine. I just have to keep doing all these things. And sooner or later, the accumulation of the good things will outweigh the accumulation of the bad things. But there's some bad news we need to address in the area of religion. And Jesus addresses it here in our text. What is the bad thing about religion? First and foremost, it focuses on the external instead of the internal. It focuses on the external instead of the internal. We saw this in verse 25. They're so focused on cleaning the outside, yet they weren't really concerned about what was in the cup, the cup being themselves or their body. Religion is all about giving the appearance of righteousness without actually possessing it. Religion is all about giving the appearance of righteousness without actually possessing that righteousness. The emphasis in religion is really to convince everyone else that you are fine, that you're good, even though you may be struggling in this or that sin. The point is just hide it, cover it up, don't acknowledge it, and as long as everyone thinks you're good, you're fine. This is not something that we just see in one church or two churches. This is something we see in human culture. So many people think, if I just go to church, if I just say this prayer, my my stepdad was one, that for years we'd have conversations, and he would say to me in rebuttal to him not knowing Christ, he'll say this, but I pray. I pray every day. And I'll say, that's great. What do you pray? What What are you praying? And he pulls out this little card that he got when he was a teenager in Catholic school. And he flipped it over. He said, I pray that prayer every day. And in his mind, this is a grown man in his 50s. This guy thought, my stepdad thought, if I just pray this prayer every day for a long enough period of time, that will somehow make up for all the bad I've done. Because I'm doing something seemingly religious. I'm doing something seemingly spiritual. And the point is, and I had to kind of lovingly, we sat down and said, look, I said, I just want to let you know. That apart from Jesus Christ, you can pray that prayer not just once a day. You can pray it every hour of the day for the rest of your life, and it will do nothing for you. But Jesus Christ, you put your faith and trust in him, and man, he'll save you and redeem you, and you'll be set for heaven forever, all of your sins forgiven. And he would say to me, "But, but, but I pray this prayer. See, religion focuses on the outside. It focuses on trying to give us a cover-up for our sin. We think because we're doing these things, we're good. Religion, as I was writing this message, religion is like foundation for sin. Now, some of the ladies in here, I'm talking about foundation, right? You put that on, kind of cover up all the blemishes. Not saying any of you have any blemishes whatsoever. I'm just saying, if you did have a blemish, foundation would be the thing you want to put on to cover it up. Now, some of you might be thinking, Pastor John, that's an odd kind of an illustration for a guy to say. I'm just trying to help the ladies out, okay? I know nothing about makeup other than I know foundation goes on first. Is that right, ladies? Am I on the right page here? Foundation goes on first. Okay, some of you are nodding at me. Some of you are like, he's talking about makeup. This is really weird. I got to leave. Um, that's awkward, okay? No, moving on. Let's just move on from that. But that's the illustration I thought of when I was writing this this last week. This religion is the idea of covering up. It's just, let me just make everyone think I'm good. Even though internally, man, I'm I'm, I'm dying. But on the outside, everyone thinks I'm good. And this is not just, again, it's not just the church problem. It's not just the Catholic church or any other denomination you want to think of. It's a human problem. We have this innate desire to worship God, right? Romans 1, we have a desire. We know there's a God, and so we want to worship him. And then, but over time, what happens? We kind of twist that worship. We kind of make it into what we want it to be, and then we think doing this act is going to get me to God, doing this religious activity. I also want to make it clear 
what I mean by religion. Okay, so in case anyone's confused on this, I want to make it clear that when I say religion, I'm speaking about a system of works or deeds that we do to try to please or earn God's favor. Some people would say things like they're trying to fulfill the law or they're trying to be a good person or they're going to church. But if they do all of that or some of that apart from the personal work of Jesus Christ, if they're doing it apart from personal acceptance of the work of Jesus Christ, then it will not bring redemption. But they think I'm doing these things. However, I want to point this out because I want to be, I don't want to be confused on this or make you confused on this. James chapter 1, you don't need to turn there, but James chapter 1, verse 27 says this. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Now, James is a very practical book. Honestly, it's one of my favorite books of the whole Bible. I love the book of James because it's kind of one of those in-your-face, like, hey, you say it, but are you doing it? You can say you're a Christian all you want. I mean, the demons believe in God and tremble. You say you believe in God, but there's no trembling. This is a very real book. But I love what James says here because, but I want to address this. James is talking about religion in a good way. So we want to make sure you understand this. So often in church we hear the word religion and we hear, uh, even a saying today is what? It's not about religion, but a relationship. Okay, we hear that phrase a lot. It's true, right? Totally true. But I want to make sure you understand this. When you get to James, you might go, oh, religion, bad word. That's a bad word because religion is bad. No, 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 no. What James is actually saying is the true and pure form of religion. The word religion in this text in James chapter 1 verse 27 carries the idea of fearing or worshiping God. I'd say that's a pretty good thing to experience. Fearing or worshiping God. Not a fearing like, oh no, but a fearing like, you are God and I am not. And I will humble myself before you because you are God. It's what Isaiah says, I'm the grasshopper in comparison to who he is. I mean, it's just, it's insane, the magnitude that is God. So James is saying pure religion is good and it's fruitful, but it's evidenced by how we serve and love and live in a way that honors Christ to those around us. This is not merely an external work, but as James points out, it's a byproduct of the saving work of Christ in you. So we have two different ideas of religion. There's the religion that is this surface, external, Pharisee in Matthew, keep the outside clean, make sure everyone's happy, make sure everyone thinks I'm good. I'm doing all these things, so I'm going to go to heaven, even though I don't really know Christ. I'm good, though, because I'm doing all this stuff. Then there's the good kind of religion, which is, no, as a follower of Christ, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to fear him. I'm going to honor him in what I do and how I live, not to earn his favor, but because I've already received his acceptance. So you have to understand that religion, what James is saying, not bad. Religion, what we've made it to be, the system of works and doing, not going to work. And so what's some other bad news about religion? Well, first of all, it focuses on the external instead of the internal. But secondly, the changes religion creates are temporal, not eternal. The changes religion creates are temporal, not eternal. When we think that religion, the bad kind of religion, will redeem us or save us, we are deceived because the difference it is making may produce temporary results, but not eternal results. 
Religion eases our conscience because we are doing this or that. It makes us feel superior and morally to those who aren't. Well, I go to church and they don't. We think we're so much better than someone else. Well, they, you know, I mean, I go to church and they sit home on Sundays. Just a newsflash. If somebody goes to the building but their heart is never engaged in what's going on in front of them or engaged in the word of God, they're not even worshiping and fearing him. James says your religion isn't pure. So uh, staying home on a Sunday morning or your heart's not engaged, the Bible seems to suggest the same thing. But people think that even in our culture today, even non-believers, well, I'm better than so-and-so down the street because I don't do this or I do this. It creates this ideal of superiority when really we're all equally sinful before Christ. It makes us, again, feel better than others because I'm religious, quote-unquote, or spiritual. It even encourages us encourages us to stop or at least cut back on negative behavior. Well, I shouldn't do that anymore because, you know, I go to church. I always love sayings like that, by the way. Oh, you can't say that. You're in church. Teens used to say it all the time. Someone would be in the youth van, in the van. I'd be picking up kids for church, and someone would maybe slip up and swear or say something, and one of the kids would go, well, you can't say that because we're in church. And they would say, well, this isn't church. This is the van, so I won't say it when I get to the church. See, again, we think this idea that, okay, well, when I get to that place, now I have to be different and be better. But again, if it's just outward, if it's just changing the outside to try to somehow impress others, it is fleeting and it is temporary. Let me explain it this way. You're buying a house, okay? You're going to look at a house. And as you're looking at the house, everything, man, this house is beautiful, perfect, Brand new siding, windows, landscaping. You get inside, everything's been remodeled, right? Brand new countertops, bathroom fixtures, everything's flooring. Man, you just, you know, this place is awesome. There's, this is completely 100% move-in ready. There is zero you have to do to this house. It is perfect. It's your dream house. The layout is perfect. The rooms are where you want. There's just enough bathrooms. Everything is perfect. And then you get a house inspection, right? A home inspection. And the, the contract comes over and they're looking through the house and they say, oh, come down to the basement for a minute. And you go down to the basement and you're thinking, this place is great. It's going to be sign the dotted line. Let's go, make an offer. And he says, can I show you something? Do you see this crack in your foundation that goes entirely around the entire foundation? Listen, this is a bad sign. And if this isn't addressed and they begin to tell you all the work that's going to go into trying to fix the foundation... If this isn't addressed, it will actually cause tons of issues in the rest of the house. You might say, that's a pretty silly illustration. Uh, Sandra and I were looking at a house one time, and it wasn't perfect in the upstairs, but we got down to the basement, and we see this crack that literally goes the entire basement, same spot, about this big. And two contractors told me, they said, if I was you, I wouldn't buy it. Because I'm telling you, over time, that's going to cause issues in the rest of the house. And all of a sudden, going back to our illustration, all of a sudden, this perfect house that you thought everything was good, all of a sudden on the outside that you thought was so beautiful and so perfect, it's not so perfect anymore. Because you discovered that while seemingly on the outside it looks good, there's this underlining issue that actually detracts from the rest of the house, and it causes you to change your whole view of the house. And that's the only way I can think of describing the changes that religion makes in us if it's just surface. We can clean up the outside. We can look really good. But the problem isn't the outside so much as it is our foundation is broken. 
our foundation is cracked. Our foundation needs issues. It needs to be resolved. And that only way our foundation is healed is when Jesus Christ redeems us and saves us and makes us alive and gives us a brand new foundation. Right now, your foundation outside of Christ is sin. In Christ, it is his righteousness. And our lives can now be built up on the foundation of Jesus Christ. So what's the good news about Jesus? Quickly. We know the bad news about religion. What's the good news about Jesus? Religion is this idea of works and do and do and do. The good news about Jesus is that you cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law. And you might say, well, that's what we're going to get there. The good news about Jesus is you cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law. Romans chapter 3. Go over to Romans chapter 3. And as you're turning to Romans chapter 3, I want to let you know uh, we are actually going to be picking up in the second week of our Roman study tonight. Uh, we're going to be finishing chapter 1 tonight. And so two weeks ago, uh, we gave you kind of a, an introduction to the book of Romans. We started off in our Romans study. We're going verse by verse through the book of Romans. And I want to invite you back tonight at 6 o'clock. Come on out. It's going to be a great time. We're going to finish chapter 1 and then uh, be ready for the rest of the book as God leads. And so Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. Listen to what God's word says. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith, of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. And there is some great news about Jesus Christ. And the first thing we have to know is, apart from Jesus Christ, we will not be justified from our sin. The Bible is clear. There is no one can be justified by following or obeying the law. The law of God, and you've got to understand this now, because I think we've got to get this right. The law of God is limited, not because it is not perfect, but because we are incapable of fulfilling it perfectly. The law of God is limited, not because it is not perfect, but because we are incapable of fulfilling it perfectly. We can try to earn God's acceptance, but we will always fall short because the passing grade with God in his understanding of what, what it looks like to pass is not 60%. It's 100% perfection. Now, I'm not going to ask anybody here to raise their hands when you were in school or college. I'm sure none of us ever looked at the syllabus and determined, okay, what do I got to do just to pass the class? I just need a 60. That's all I need. I just need a 60. So I'm not going to do this assignment, not do this assignment. I got to take this test. I better do good on this one because that's a big part of the grade. I just need 60. When I was a freshman in college, I had a friend of mine. We used to say we had this one class together, and it was not, not an enjoyable situation. We did not enjoy the class. But we always used to joke about a 60 means I don't have to see this professor next semester. That's all it meant. A 60 means I don't got to see this professor next semester, okay? Now, that's a horrible way to go about education. To all the students, do not do that, okay? Get the most out of your schooling you can get. I know some of you are like, I'm so done with school, I don't care anymore. But trust me, I look back on that, I regret that greatly. But let's say you were sitting in a college classroom. The professor gets up and you're getting this exam. And the professor passes it out and says, I want you guys to know, if you do not get a 100% on this exam, you fail this course, and you flunk out for the semester, you're done. It's 100% perfection, or it's nothing. 
Now, obviously, we know that's not how school works, but could you imagine how God's system works? He says it's perfection or it's failure. There's no middle ground. There's no 60%. There's no 70%. It's you are either 100% perfect or you fail. And here's the thing. Before some of you think, yeah, but I can't. We're back to now the bad definition of religion. You can't. You know, it's funny. Whenever I've witnessed the people, the one question I've never had any argument on, I've had people debate me about the reality of Christ and the need for salvation and, and all the different questions about, well, why are there so many beliefs in the world? And are you telling me that the Hindu person over here and the Christian over here, that the Christian goes to heaven and the Hindu doesn't because the Christian knows Jesus and they don't, even though they're just as sincere in their faith or more so? I mean, those kind of questions we get debate on and argument about. Do you know the one question I've never had debated when I ask them, do you believe you're perfect? Not one person has ever said Yes. Ever. Every person. Do you believe you're perfect? No. Have you ever sinned? Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, No debate there whatsoever. The debate comes into what do we do about that now? Because then I've had people say, well, yeah, but God's love, and so I'll still go to heaven when I die. Well, God is love, but God is also just. And yeah, you can go to heaven when you die if you go through his means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. But nobody's ever debated that issue. Nobody's ever questioned their perfection. We all know we're not perfect. And so when you get to this idea of religion, this idea of trying to follow the law, God lays it out. It can't happen. So then if we we can't fulfill the law perfectly, then what was the purpose of the law? Well, the purpose of the law is to show the need for a Savior. You're in Romans chapter 3. Go to Romans chapter 7. Very popular verse. But Romans chapter 7 and verse 7. We cannot earn God's acceptance by obeying the law, the commandments of God fully. And by the way, you might say, well, yeah, there was like 613 commandments, right? Let's just use the 10 commandments as a baseline. How long, just think about it in your own head, apart from Jesus Christ, how long do we have to get down the list of 10 before we realize we've blown it? I guess most of us won't get past number one. What's the first commandment? Thou shalt have no other gods. Some of us, we've already failed. We're done. Because we have made ourselves our own God. You have made your career your God. You have made your family your God. You have made your success your God. You have made your wealth your God. So you've already failed. You say, well, that's only one out of ten. It's still passing. No, we've already addressed this. It's perfection or it's nothing. James says it very well. If you offend in one area, you've offended in all. Well, yeah, but that's not a big one. That's not like one of the big ones. I never killed anybody. What did Jesus say? If you have hatred in your heart towards your brother, you've committed murder. Well, yeah, but I've never committed adultery. I mean, I've never done that one. Well, Jesus says if you look after a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. By the way, for the ladies that are here, that goes for you too. If it's a man, you know, it's, it's not just men to women. It doesn't take long. Just 10. Just 10 and we've already blown it. So if we can't fulfill the law perfectly, then what was the purpose of the law? What was to show us the need of a Savior? Romans 7 and verse 7. This is in a passage that deals with Paul's personal struggles. He gets into a lot of different do's and do nots and nots and do nots and all that. But, but let's look at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sinful? Well, he says pretty clearly, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. 
You see, the purpose of the law, as Paul reveals to us, is to show us the need of forgiveness, the need to be forgiven, rather, and the need to not try harder, but to accept what God has done for us. Uh, you know, I, I'm always amazed when I come into church, and, and as I'm going through the service, the way things kind of come together. I'm always blown away by this. Uh, when Gary got up and started singing, I was like, he, if I would have asked him, hey, pick a song to speak to this issue, we couldn't have planned it better. We didn't plan it, okay? It was just God leading. But when he got to that part about talking this idea of the, what God has done for us, that it's not what we do for him. Man, I was sitting over there, I was like, God, you are so amazing. Like, you couldn't have lined this up better. And that's the point. We need a Savior. God never says, just keep trying, just keep trying. No, 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 no. It's perfection or it's nothing. There were those that Paul was speaking to here that considered the law of God to be sin or useless because we now live in grace. We don't need the law anymore because we're under grace. We can't fulfill it, so we don't need it. It's sinful almost even to talk about it, but that's not what Paul says. The truth is, while we are saved and kept by grace, it is only because Christ fulfilled the law of God that we were granted his righteousness. We were granted his righteousness. That's the only reason we were considered righteous. I want to take a second note to, second to note, rather, the sin that Paul uses as an illustration. What's the sin that Paul uses as an example in Romans 7, 7? What's the sin that Paul references as an illustration of this idea? I didn't know sin, but by the law. I didn't know this sin, except the law said this. What's the sin he references? Lust. If you're going to make a case, and you're going to make an argument to try to prove this thing, you might go to one of the big dogs, right? One of the big ones. Murder, adultery, right? All these things. By the way, we don't know that Paul ever literally killed someone, meaning with his own hands, but we know with the stoning of Stephen that he condoned murder. He said, hey, it's okay, I'm for this. So here's the point I want to point out. Why did Paul use this sin? Why doesn't he use murder, adultery, one of the big three, one of the big ones? He says, no, 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 I never knew lust. In fact, this is the idea of the last of the Ten Commandments and differs from the other nine because this deals with an inward attitude, not an outward action. It deals with an inward attitude, not an outward action. Why this sin? Because the sin of covetousness leads to the violation of the other commandments. Think about it. What does James say? You lust and have not, so you kill. I want it, I don't have it, so I'll kill you and I'll take it. This sin of lust and covetousness will actually lead us to the violation of the other commandments. It is a wicked sin that many of us do not talk about or acknowledge, but God reveals in his law. Now, now we get back to the truth of it. You can try to fix that lust problem all you want. You can try to work on it and try harder and be better. But the truth is, whether it's lusting for someone else's possession, lusting for someone else other than your spouse, which includes looking at pornography, if you want to fix those things, you can't do it on your own. You can't make it work, but you can do it through Christ. See, when we receive Christ, we receive the resurrected life of Christ, and we are given the strength and the victory to overcome these sins. You and I cannot resurrect anything, but God resurrected his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he gives that power to us, that he lives in us, that we live a new life. Romans 6 talks about living in the newness of life. 
So what's the good news about Jesus? Well, first of all, you understand that I can't earn God's acceptance by obeying the law. The purpose of the law is to show the need of a Savior. And that when I receive Christ, to receive Christ, that being right with God comes by faith in Christ alone. Romans 3, 22. Go back there. We'll look at this verse and then we'll wrap it up. Romans 3, 22. Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto some, no, unto all, and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference. Man, I'm so thankful that God is not a respecter of persons. That God doesn't show favoritism to one people group over another, to one economic group over another, one gender over another. That it is no, we are all equally given the righteousness of Christ if we will believe and trust in Christ. Faith in Christ cleanses us from our sin and redeems us for eternity. But it also, hear me now, gives us the ability to live righteous lives for Christ. We are saved forever. We're given his righteousness so that we'll be with him in heaven forever. But then we're also gifted his righteousness in this life so that we may live righteously for him and to honor him and to glorify him. I heard a story once about a man that asked a preacher, why do we need both? Why do we need both? If he cleanses us from our sin, then why do I need to be clothed with or live in the righteousness of Christ? Why do I need both? If he gives me eternal life through Christ, why do I need then righteousness to live for Christ? And this preacher thought about it, and he responded with something like this. He said, let me ask you what you do for a living. The guy said, well, I'm a landscaper. And he said, okay, well, I can tell by your appearance. You probably rough hands. You probably work outside a lot. Yep, yep, yep. This was in Georgia, apparently, in July. Okay, so a landscaper in Georgia in July. What do we know about this guy's work environment? It's pretty hot, pretty humid, okay? And the preacher asked the question like this. He said, let me ask you a question. When you go home, what do you have to do for your wife to properly greet you when you come home? He kind of looked puzzled. He said, well, when you get home, you're probably not in the most, you know, cleansly, cleans, cleansing appearance. You know, what do you got to do to be able to allow her to give you a hug and embrace you? He said, oh, he said, well, I have to take a shower and change my clothes. I take a shower, change my clothes, and I can give my wife a hug and a kiss. And the preacher said, well, why don't you just do one or the other? Why don't you take a shower but put your dirty clothes back on? And like I said, well, that wouldn't work. I would still stink. Hmm. He said, well, how about this? How about you change your clothes but you don't take a shower? Well, no, I'm still dirty. And the preacher said, exactly. It's not one or the other. We need both. And aren't you thankful that Jesus Christ came into your life when you received him as your Savior? He cleansed you from the inside. He washed you, the Bible says, by the power of the regeneration of the word of God. He cleansed you on the inside, and then he clothed you with his righteousness. See, it's not one or the other. We are saved eternally, cleansed internally, and then we're clothed, we're wrapped in the righteousness of Christ. And why do we need both? Because in both, we find the fullness of our joy. Man, I know he has cleansed me on the inside, and I know he has wrapped me in righteousness on the outside, and I can live now in a way that honors him. It's not me being glorified, but him being glorified. We have to understand that God is not anti-fun and anti-enjoyment. God is not anti-fun or anti-enjoyment. God is not a killjoy God. God is not a God of rules for rules' sake. 
In fact, again, anywhere the Bible encourages us to not do something in the New Testament or in the moral law of God, it is for our good. So I want you to know this this morning. God is not a killjoy God. That we cannot, through religion, earn our way to him. That we needed him to come to us and to give himself. He laid his life down. He lived a sacrificial life. He was sinless. He died on a sinner's cross, was buried in a borrowed tomb. And when we receive Christ as our Savior, it's not about trying harder or doing better. It's about just receiving his fullness of salvation. And when we're in Christ fully, we can now enjoy life fully. But I'm I'm promising you, even as a follower of Christ, if you will go against the things that God says not to do, you will not find greater joy. You will find bondage. You will find heartache. You will find destruction. You will find pain. You will hurt yourself and those around you. And that is why God says, not because I'm trying to rob you of your joy, but man, I want you to truly be joyful. And so listen, if you live this life the way that I encourage in Christ, now you'll see the fullness of what life can be. I've said it before, I'll say it again. I don't know that anyone, apart from a follower of Jesus Christ, can truly and fully enjoy this life the way it's meant to be enjoyed. Would you bow your heads right there where you are? As the praise band comes and lead us in a song of invitation, I pray that you will begin right there where you are to ask God, to seek God. I know for many of us, as you're there praying, I know for many of us that know Christ, that know the gospel, We've received it. Some of these things this morning were, uh, we've, already, we've already known these things. They're redundant in some sense. But I pray that for those that know Christ, that you would be encouraged and affirmed that the grace that saved you is the grace that sustains you. It's the grace that keeps you. And when we stumble and we fall in this life, as a follower of Christ, We do not have to fear that we've lost him, that he has abandoned us, that he has walked away from us. Because his word guarantees to us, if we receive Christ as our Lord and Savior, that we are his and he is ours. He has sealed us unto the day of redemption. And so we can know that when we fall in this life, we get up in his grace. He picks us up. We repent of the things that we've done wrong. We turn from those things by his grace. And we allow ourselves to live in the fullness of Christ in a way that would honor him. Again, not because we want to gain his favor. We've already been accepted. Therefore, it's an overflow of our life in Christ. Father, may you be glorified in you alone in all that has been said and done. I'm so thankful that when I could not fulfill the law, when I could not get a perfect score, that you came to this world, that you gave your life for us, and that your perfection, your sinlessness was imputed or gifted, given to me, but not just to me, but to anyone and upon all that would receive Christ as their Savior. I don't need to fear because I, I have experienced perfect love. And so I pray, Father, that not just for myself, but for those in this room, that we would stop beating ourselves up when we trip, when we fall. That we would own it, yes, Lord, that we would confess and repent and, and, and be, be honest about it, that we would receive joyfully whatever comes from it because it's going to grow us. But I pray that we would not fear abandonment 
and know that you are with us because you love us. So, Father, may we walk in you this morning, walk in you through the day and this week, and may we enjoy this life to the fullest because we know you're not a killjoy God. You're not a God of rules for rules' sake. So may we honor the boundaries that you have encouraged us to put in our lives and see them as, as boundaries that will help us to experience greater joy. We love you, Lord, and we ask this again in Jesus' name.